So Paul is waiting for his appeal to Caesar to be honored. Festus can't send him until he can write a report. And so in this meantime, Agrippa comes to town, says, I'd like to hear of this prisoner. I'd like to hear from this prisoner. And so he's brought before Agrippa. And I want us to consider uh, three appeals that Paul makes to defend the resurrection of Jesus Christ before this man. The first is an appeal to Scripture. An appeal to Scripture. Uh, since King Agrippa had Jewish background, Paul knows that he could appeal to this man's familiarity with the ways of God that have been handed down throughout the Jewish Scriptures. So notice the inclusive language that Paul uses in verses 5 through 7. He says, our religion, our fathers, our 12 tribes. He's putting he and Agrippa on the same plane uh, as though they're on the same team, even though to look at it externally, there couldn't be anything more different than these two guys. Agrippa and his sister Bernice have ridden into town all this pomp. Uh, he's got his royal robe and his crown, and there's Paul in chains. And yet Paul says, our status is aside. We do actually share something in common. It's our faith. It's our faith in Yahweh, in our faith in the Bible, that's what we have in common. And he says, it's my faith in the word of God, which you share, Herod, that's, that's the reason I'm in prison, that I'm on trial, because of something you believe too. In fact, something that every Jew believes. Verses 6 and 7, again, reading from the, the ESV. Now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. When Paul here speaks of hope, he's talking about a messianic hope. Right? All of Israel put their hope in a coming Messiah, uh, one who would bring eternal comfort and peace and joy, and do so ultimately by defeating death. By defeating death. The scriptures attest to this. Psalm 2 speaks of this. Psalm 16, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 55, just to name a few. These are ones that Paul and Peter had both used previously in their sermons in Acts. But look at what Paul says in verse 22 and following. Turn to verse 22. To this day I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, listen to this, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, Namely, that the Christ would suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people, the Jewish people, and to the Gentiles. So Paul's first point by appealing to Scripture is to say to Agrippa, I don't believe anything that a good Jew shouldn't already believe. Every Jew deep down believes in this messianic hope. This is why they worship God, because they, bring, they, they believe he'll bring about this hope. And then he's suggesting, though, maybe they don't actually believe that. Look at verse 8. Look at the question he puts to Agrippa, and by extension to all the Jewish people. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why is that thought to be such an amazing thing? Why does that blow your mind? Why can't you... Accept that notion. Why not? Because Paul is saying he's promised that he would do such things. 
This is what the prophets, this is what Moses, the law, this is what the whole Old Testament that we have has indicated. That God would do this. Not only that, but God has done things like this before. Elijah raising the widow's son in 1 Kings 17. Daniel and his friends uh, being spared the, the fiery furnace. And Daniel later, the, the lions and these, these death-defeating victories. Or how about the entire nation of, of Egypt, uh, of Israel, coming out of Egypt in the Exodus, which is, is seen like a resurrection. They're brought from the pit and they're placed uh, in, in a, a new heavens and a new earth, as it were, the promised land, from death to life. This is what God does. Why should you think it's crazy that Jesus would be raised from the dead? That's the argument Paul's making. God has promised these things. He's done these things. The scriptures testify to these things. Well, why would they not believe in the resurrection? At least two reasons. First reason is that they didn't want to believe. Because Jesus, if he really was the Messiah, if he really was that messianic hope, if he really was the answer that God sent, what a pathetic answer it was. What a pathetic Messiah he was. What a supremely disappointing answer from God. That's what they thought. Not the Savior King they were hoping for. What did they want? Well, Jesus said he came to free them from the curse of sin. Maybe so. They wanted freedom from the grip of Rome. And so an empty tomb doesn't do them any good. So, why, why don't they believe in the resurrection? Well, one reason, maybe they didn't want to. Well, there's a second reason. Not that they didn't want to, maybe they couldn't believe in it. That they couldn't believe. To profess faith in the power of God as displayed in those stories I mentioned. Elijah and the widow's son. Elisha also. Uh, Daniel. The Exodus. Well, that was all kind of quaint and folksy. You know, maybe they went along with it because it's just tradition. It's just part of their heritage. Um, they liked the stories. They, they liked that nostalgia. And so it's one thing to believe in miracles way back when. It all kind of seems fantastical and, and mythical. But now they're faced with a miracle in their own day and age. Are they spiritual enough to believe it? You see, friends, the natural man can never believe in miracles. Why? Because he's a natural man, and miracles, by definition, are supernatural. As some people, some critics of Christianity say, the only reason people believed miracles back in the biblical times was because they were so backward, right? They're so stupid back then. They don't, they don't understand anything. But now, well, we are enlightened. Now we have science. And so we don't need miracles to explain how the world works. But you see, the same problems that keep people from believing in a resurrected Christ today existed 2,000 years ago, scientific progress aside. Because it's as simple as this. If you believe in God, you will believe in miracles. And if you do not believe in God, you will not believe in miracles. And that's what Paul is really stressing in this question. Why, in verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? 
if you believe in God and who he is and what he's done, what he says, what he promises, if you believe in God, you must accept that he can do these things. And if you can't believe that he could raise Jesus from the dead, then you don't believe in him. What Paul is saying is you can't keep your Jewish heritage and your Jewish faith and not believe the Christian gospel. The two go hand in hand. Paul is saying, I haven't, I haven't invented anything new. This is the natural, the logical conclusion from our own faith, Agrippa. This is what our fathers believed in. And now it's happened right before our eyes. And if you can't believe that, then you can't say that you're, you're a believer in God. Why is it thought incredible by any of you? That God should raise someone from the dead. So, he appeals to scripture. If that appeal uh, upon uh, the power and promises of God is revealed in the scriptures does not convince Agrippa, Paul makes a second appeal, and that's to his own experience. He gives his testimony, we would call it, in verses 9 and following. Explains his background. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's one of the most zealous to protect and promote the Jewish customs. Uh, look again at verse 9. I myself was convinced I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I had to do many things. So I did that in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them in synagogues. I tried to make them blaspheme. And in a fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities, saying I couldn't even let them go. That's how much I hated it. If they turned tail and ran, I ran after them. What's his point? Paul is saying that he had absolutely nothing to gain. And he had everything to lose from throwing his lot in with the Christians. We have heard of, and I imagine at least one person in this room has experienced personally what we call a rock-bottom conversion. Do you know what I mean by that? Right? When, when, you, when you've lost everything. Friends have left you. Families denied you. Uh, um, all of your pleasures have, have left you empty. And, and all of your scheming has toppled over. And you realize you have absolutely nothing left. And it's at that moment you realize the only place to turn. The only one who could help is God. Many people are converted in those moments, it's a gracious moment. Terrible place to be in with the heavy hand of God on you. And yet, as, as those who've been converted through those moments will attest, the worst day of their life becomes the greatest day. Rock bottom conversions. But that's not Paul. He's at the height of his career. He's getting permission from the chief priests to go and, and to put people to death. He's well-respected. Uh, the Jews like Paul. He has nothing to gain by believing in the resurrection. The only reason Paul would leave the prestige and the comfortability of his pharisaical life to preach the resurrection is if the resurrection really happened. That was something Agrippa had to consider it's something you have to consider as well. You know, do you know that the, the enduring, the radical transformation of the apostles 
is one of the most powerful uh, witnesses to the reality of the resurrection. One of the most powerful, not the most powerful. The most powerful testimony we have is our Bibles. Revelation from God. But uh, maybe coming in in second place in terms of most powerful evidences that we have for the reality of an empty tomb is the transformed lives of the apostles. How Saul could go from one whose hatred of the church was literally the air he breathed to becoming one of the greatest defenders of the church. Or think of Peter, a coward, denying his Savior, and then after the resurrection, dying for his Savior, as uh, would every apostle except for John, and they tried to kill him too. Men don't die for a, a fantasy for um, a lie. Uh, it's not like they all colluded and said, let's make up this story, and if anybody presses on us, you're all willing to die for it? Yep, good, okay, yeah, let's do it. No, no, no. But men will die for the truth. And Paul didn't simply believe in a risen Jesus. He met a risen Jesus. That's what he describes in verses 12 through 18, I want you to know you have met him too if you're a Christian. You know that, right? Oh, maybe not. There's, there's not the blinding light. There's not that booming voice. But what Paul is saying right here to Agrippa is one of the reasons I know the resurrection is real is because I met a really risen Savior. He's so real to me. And you can say that too, can you not? You know Jesus in this personal way, just like you know a spouse, like you know a friend, like you, you, you know a family member. He's, he's your brother to you. He's a bridegroom to you. He's real to you. And so you tell others. Jesus is someone who is personally known by all those whom he has saved. And those whom Jesus meets, he gives a mission. Not unlike Paul, we're called to bear witness to what we know about Jesus, to tell others how real he really is. So Paul appeals from his own experience. And it's at about this point that Festus interrupts. Remember, Festus was the whole reason this got started. We forgot he's there because Paul's been talking to Agrippa. But then verse 24, uh, he interrupts and he says, Paul, you're out of your mind, right? Remember this whole time, Festus is taking notes so that he can compile his report that he has to give to the teacher, I mean to Caesar, uh, later. And at this point, he's thinking, I'm going to sound like a crazy person if I have to put this into my report. And so he takes it out on Paul. Paul, you're, you're crazy. You are out of your mind. And Paul, very politely you'll notice, actually turns the tables and implies to Agrippa, uh, or I mean to Festus, you're the crazy one. Did, did you notice that? You, you won't pick it up right away because he's so subtle in what he does. But look with me again, verse 24. You know, you think you're so smart, but actually you're crazy. And then Paul says in verse 25, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. Look what he does here, verse 26. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. What has he just done? Festus calls him crazy, and he's looking at Festus. He says, 
Festus, I'm not crazy. I speak bold and rational words. And what he does then is he turns to Agrippa and says, Festus can't handle bold and rational words. So I'm going to deal with you because you are a sane person. What's he implying? Festus, you're the crazy one. You are insane. You can't keep up. It's kind of insulting. It's clever though. And so he says to Agrippa, I'm going to deal with you. And here we have Paul's final appeal. He's appealed to scripture and he's appealed to his personal experience. What can we call this? It's an appeal to reason. Yes. An appeal to the person, to the soul. Look how personal he gets. Here we, remember, we are reminded that Paul is ultimately not making a defense for himself, but a defense of the faith. His concern is ultimately not to get himself out of jail, but to get Agrippa out of hell. He looks right at Agrippa and he says, He says to him there in verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe? Do you believe the prophets? I, I know you do. Be reasonable with me. You must. Do you believe? Forget my case for a moment. I'm not asking if you believe the Sanhedrin, if you believe my accusers. Do you believe the prophets? Do you believe God? Are you a Christian? Paul prioritizes appropriately here. He places the soul of this one individual right in front of him. He places the, 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 the future of that soul. That becomes the most important thing to Paul. Uh, Pastor uh, John MacArthur out in L.A. Uh, gave the world an example of, of this very thing this burden for souls. Several months ago in September, maybe some of you saw it, he wrote an open letter to uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom when after Roe v. Wade was overturned, Newsom was using state funds to put up billboards all over the country saying, come to California, you can have your abortion here and even use scripture uh, to promote that on the billboard. And MacArthur in this open letter, he lays out what the Bible says about calling evil good and the responsibility of magistrates but the bulk of the letter is actually a personal appeal for the sake of Newsom's soul. Let me read you a portion. My concern, Governor Newsom, is that your own soul lies in grave, eternal peril. One day, not very long from now, you will face that reality. Nothing is more certain. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. You will stand in the presence of the holy God who created you, who is your judge, and he will demand that you give an account for how you flouted his authority in your governing and how you've twisted his own holy word to rationalize it. And as you look over the precipice of eternity, what will your answer be? When you look ahead of you and you see that nothing awaits you but eternal misery, what will all of your clever rationalizations and political talking points avail for you then? Well, by then it will be too late for any remedy or any redemption. My plea to you, sir, is that you would not let it come to that. That you would not go to that day of judgment apart from receiving forgiveness and righteousness through faith in Christ alone. There is salvation for those who repent. Christ purchased full redemption for all who will turn from wickedness forsake their evil thoughts and trust fully in him 
as Lord and Savior. Our church and countless Christians nationwide are praying. He doesn't say are praying for you. He says are praying for your repentance. For your salvation. To my knowledge, Governor Newsom never replied to Pastor MacArthur. Which is not a whole lot better than the reply that Paul receives from Agrippa. So he asks him. He puts it right to him. You can't escape it. King, do you believe? Are you Christian? I've given you reasons for, for the reality of the resurrection. Do you believe? What does Agrippa say? It's in verse 28. The ESV reads, Agrippa says to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? It could be translated that way. It could also be translated as a statement. You, you almost persuaded me in a short time to be a Christian. You've almost persuaded me. So it's a question, maybe. Well, you think you can do this in a short amount of time, or it's a statement. Uh, I want you to know, Paul, you got close. Too bad we didn't have more time. R.C. Sproul says that these are the most tragic words Agrippa ever uttered. And I want to ask you very soberly tonight, do they represent your thoughts on the matter? Are you almost persuaded about the resurrection? Young people, boys and girls, are you almost convinced that this Jesus that your parents believe in, they bring you to church to hear about, are you almost convinced that he's real and that he was really raised? What's the thing that's keeping you from being fully convinced? What's that one thing that's keeping you from embracing Christ who's saying, I'm here, I'm for you, my arms are open for you. Receive my righteousness, receive the redemption I have. What, what's, what's the barrier? What's keeping you? Speak with, speak with your elders about it after the service. Say, this is the one thing I can't get over. Speak to Pastor Chris. Speak to me if I'm not doing 80 miles uh, an hour down the road trying to get to my wife. You can't afford to put it off, is my point. You need to be persuaded. Don't be an almost Christian. The almost Christian goes to the same hell as the defined unbeliever. Or, or maybe you're thinking... Well, you know, certainly, Pastor, you know, you, you can't expect me to believe after hearing you just preach for 30 minutes. I mean, give me some more time. That's, you know, kind of the way Agrippa says, you've almost persuaded me. Too bad we didn't have more time. Surely you can't expect me to have been persuaded in such a short amount of time. Sure I can. Because I don't expect it to take very long for you to be persuaded that 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's rational. It's reasonable. It's logical. So is the resurrection. That's Paul's point. These things haven't been done in a corner. He says, 500 people saw Jesus was raised. They spoke with him. They talked with him. They touched him. They ate with him. You have what you need, friends. You don't need more time. And quite frankly, you don't have more time. You can't say, let's talk about this more next week. Next week isn't promised to any of us. You have all the information you need. And so you need to ask yourself, what will be the cost to sit on that information and to not act? 
I wonder what Gerald Mason would say to that if he could be asked today. He died several years ago. Who's Gerald Mason, you're wondering? Well, in closing, let me share with you a brief story. January 27th, 1986, Alan McDonald and his uh, team of engineers were on the phone with their NASA counterparts in, uh, in Florida, pleading with them to call off the, um, the launch for the um, Challenger space rocket that was scheduled the next morning. Um, Alan McDonald and his team, they worked for Morton Theokol, which was the company that manufactured the rocket. And Alan McDonald ran the rocket booster division. And he argued that the temperature uh, was going to be too cold for a launch. The temperature was so cold, I mean, not so cold, but cold enough that uh, the rubber O-rings, which um, were part of the, the, um, uh, the boosters, would stiffen and therefore allow fuel to escape, which could cause potentially an explosion. Well, NASA would not hear of it. Too much money had gone into it, too much publicity. This was uh, the first time a, a citizen was going into space, uh, the, the school teacher. But the problem that NASA faced was that they could not move forward with the launch unless Alan McDonald signed off on it because he was the head of this division. So they faxed over a letter and they said, we've heard your concerns, now sign off so we can have the launch tomorrow. McDonald refused to. He said later it was the best decision of his life. So that means the launch shouldn't have taken place. The one man that, that they needed to give the okay did not give the okay. So what happened instead? Alan's supervisor, Gerald Mason, under increased pressure from NASA, signed in his place. Mason was part of all the same meetings. He had all the same information as that team of engineers who were saying they were convinced the rocket will explode. People will die. He had all the same information, but he was not convinced. He was almost persuaded. You know the story. 73 seconds after takeoff, the rocket explodes. Seven astronauts are killed. An investigation found out later the reason was, quote, uh, due to the failure of the primary and secondary redundant O-ring seals in a joint in the shuttle's right rocket booster. It was the exact problem that the engineers had warned about. Well, maybe if Mason's own life and not just his career was on the line, he would have acted differently. Your life is on the line, though. Your life is. You cannot afford to be almost persuaded. It took 73 seconds for Gerald Mason to become fully persuaded, fully convinced that those men were right and that he was wrong. 73 seconds. Let me tell you very seriously. When you die, it won't take 73 seconds. The moment every single person dies, the very instant, not a second later, not a nanosecond later, the instant, the instant we die, we all become believers. The problem is God doesn't judge us based on our belief post-death. But in life, right now, tonight. Tonight. You have all the information you need. You have the promises of God in Scripture. 
You have the actions of God throughout all of Scripture. You have the revelation of the Gospels. You have the enduring transformation of the apostles. You have everything you need. The almost Christian goes to that same hell as the defiant unbeliever. The maybe Christian definitely goes to judgment. Don't let that be you. Our Father, uh, we pray now asking that you would help us grapple with these weighty things that we've considered tonight. We ask that indeed you would work faith in us. My sincere prayer, Lord, is that if there are any here tonight who do not know you in a saving way, who have not been convinced that tonight would be a night of salvation for them, that they would be, by your Spirit, fully persuaded. And for those of us who have known you, perhaps our entire lives, for decades, um, living in the church, growing up in the church, uh, knowing you as our Father, would our faith increase? Would we never doubt you? Would we always turn to you? For in Jesus Christ, you are everything. Oh, persuade us of these things, Lord. Would we forsake ourselves, forsake our sin, leave behind our doubts, and run to you in the arms of faith? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll stand as we sing our closing song. It's in the Psalter, number 71. I waited for the Lord Most High. And then uh, we will sing the doxology, Now Blessed Be Jehovah God. Let's stand.
Receive now your Lord's blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and remain with you all now and forevermore. Amen.